Good morning and welcome to Palm Vista's Bible 45, A Light to the Nations. Last week we took the first 1600 years of Christian history in one big bite. Today we're going to look at modern missions from 1600 to present and zoom in a little bit on the history of an organization that Claudia and I are more familiar with, Latin America Mission and United World Mission. Many of the modern concepts that Al covered in his first three teachings, we're not gonna go as in depth on, but we're gonna get a few more practical examples. We're gonna see some of the things that he addressed worked out in the daily lives of missions as we get towards the end of our period. So let's jump into the 1600s. During the colonial expansion, mission was essentially a function of government and expansion of territories. We're just past Luther's 99th thesis and in the midst of the Reformation. Again, I encourage you to take a look at Cal Beisner's Heroes of the Reformation for that period. Protestant church is growing, but it's not got world missions on its radar screen yet. The Catholic Church is essentially the only show around the globe. They're expanding out through two primary governmental superpowers, the Portuguese and the Spanish. The Portuguese created trade empires that were relatively small apart from Brazil. And their approach was crushing ethnic faiths. They just militarily drove them out. No tolerance. The Spanish, on the other hand, chose to transplant Spanish civilization and the Catholic faith. Missions would be established on the frontiers. Uh, It was missions compounds, and then towns built up around them, characterized during this period by converting natives, and then the natives became many of the employees around the mission. Once the Spanish government determined that the locals, the Indians, the natives, were, quote, civilized, often the mission was secularized and replaced with primarily governmental officials and simply had the priests running the care of those that had been converted. So we're going to jump into the 17th century. And I want to remind us of what Paul states. Um, We're good there. I want to remind us what Paul states. I have some, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. To do it, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. 1 Corinthians 9.22. The Jesuits took this seriously. They expanded with the Portuguese in their exploration trips as well as the settlements that they attempted to bring about. In Japan, the Jesuits adapted to Japanese homes, dress, most of their customs, etiquette, and language. They produced Japanese Christian literature printed on mission presses brought over, but worked by Japanese converts. Once initial converts were created, evangelism and catechism was then carried out by the natives as deacons. In India, the Jesuits assumed the roles of Christian Brahmin, or the teachers, spiritual leaders of the country. They used the Brahmin dress, observation of caste laws, etc. They studied in the major schools. Uh, They focused on Hindi philosophy, understanding how 
those in India thought and understood the world and presented the gospel in familiar terms to the Hindu. In China, the Jesuits went even to more extremes in gradually introducing concepts and teachings, but focusing largely on traditional Chinese culture. And that included a lot of the um, ancestral and state rights, things that the Catholic Church in that point wouldn't tolerate. And so Rome's response to all of this was simply banning all Jesuit principles and forcing missionaries who go, went to the Orient during this time to take an oath stating that they would not enculturate the, the gospel, would not focus so much on culture that to what Rome's perspective uh, was a loss of the message. However, within 200 years, they reversed that ruling because they realized that what was happening in forcing the Chinese to no longer take part in the state rights and the family ancestral rights is that people were completely isolated and the gospel simply didn't spread. We have slide four, Nico. Recognizing the need to reach cultures and not water down the gospel is ultimately important in being able to work with the people that we're ministering to, whether it's today, here in Hialeah, or in the periods that we're talking about. One of the earliest Protestant expansions was through the Moravians. Uh, they descended from the Hussites, dating back to the reformer Juan Hus, John Hus, I'm getting some Spanish in there, John Hus, who demanded that the Catholic liturgy be done in the local vernacular instead of the traditional Latin. He figured it would be a good thing for people to understand what's being taught. So the Moravians, they're, they're famous for what we many have heard about, their indentured servitude, where they didn't have the funds for everybody to get to the countries they were going to go to. However, their focus really was a self-supporting occupation that they could use amongst the people that they were going to be sharing the gospel with. Essentially, they were tent makers. Uh, today, our version of tent makers would be called businesses mission, where we have businesses, we have often technology or things that certain countries need that Christians can use to gain access, to enter into that arena. Um, take the next slide, Nico. Myself, I had this as a concept when I went into college, and I figured... Uh, marine biology was something I enjoyed, and I could use it to get into other countries. I couldn't pass bio 1A, though, so that didn't work out too well. But then journalism became a next opportunity, figuring journalists go all over the world. Then I got called to Cuba, and the only thing worse than an evangelical Christian in Cuba was a journalist. So, However, God has used these things anyways. But that's an ex those are examples of modern-day uh, tent-making. The Moravians, one of the things that they responded to differently than the Catholic Church was that they were not going to infer, enforce the rules of their home cultures amongst the people that they were ministering to. But they sought, quote, God-ordained distinctive traits and characteristics within a culture that could be doorways for the gospel. It took a lot of time for them to learn at that depth, the cultures that they were working with, but they were able to communicate the gospel in a Im 
unimaginably sensitive way that people could hear within their own culture and then share it with others. So, let's jump into the 18th century and the growth of what was called missionary compounds. But we'll start with William Carey, a Baptist missionary who's known as the father of modern missions because of the way that he went about doing it. Uh, Primarily in India, he opened schools for the poor and especially those of the lower, lower castes. So instead of focusing as earlier missionaries did on becoming the spiritual leaders, the Brahmin who were the upper class, uh, William Carey focused on the lower class and caring for them in ways that they had never experienced. Um, he sought, let's see, where do we go? Oh, one of the other things he did was translated scriptures into the vernacular again, including six languages. He took the time with his teams to make sure that the gospel was available in six languages throughout India, including Hindi and Sankrit, as well as Bengali. But what happened is there was a rapid growth of a compound mentality, similar to the earlier Catholic missions where a city would grow up around it. Converts, unless they were converted with their entire social group, were instantly alienated and became financially as well as relationally dependent on missionaries and the mission. So quickly, there grew up an economic dependence of anybody who was converted, and it resulted in an even further division between the very people that they were trying to reach. Uh, Can we have the next slide, Nico? As Al introduced in Lesson 3, the indigenous principle method, the focus was churches that were self-governing, churches that, uh, planting churches that could reproduce themselves. They were self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. As opposed to becoming these missions that everybody was stuck in and flocked to and isolated. One of the places that we really see this continuing is in China today. We hear a lot about the three self-church, the self-governing, self-supporting, self-propagating. I remember first hearing about this in seminary, thinking three self in Asia, that sounds kind of new agey. But now understanding that it was really the vision of Ben and Nevius to Uh, avoid some of the previous mistakes that were made and to be able to reach culture because the culture was reaching itself, creating churches that would then reach their own people and reproduce themselves. The vision was to train local leaders and to lead the church as part of their own culture and then simply move on, move on elsewhere where the gospel wasn't present. Um, Next one, Nico. So to this day, China still remains one of the main countries that has this system. It's largely underground still. Uh, There's the state church, but the three-self church is one of the main churches that continues to reproduce. So I want to jump into some of the mission strategies that uh, Al addressed, and we're going to get into a few modern examples here. Next slide, Nico. 
We're going to step into the history of Latin America Mission and United World Mission. Some of you know a little bit about them because of Claudia and my involvement. Uh, you've taken part in some of the outreaches that we've done around here. And though those were Life of Freedom Center, ultimately we as LAM missionaries were doing exactly what we're called to do in our missions organization. Um, drawing from Al's teaching on the four phases of mission and national relationships, there's four phases that missions need to go through. And this is really a result of some of William Carey's work in the history. But first is the pioneer phase, where we start out being really the only ones with the gospel. If you think of parts of Latin America, Asia, where the gospel isn't there, somebody needs to go in. Somebody needs to be the first person to really bring any introduction to what Christ has accomplished. That then should transition into a paternal relationship where missionaries lead and trade nationals for leadership, as we've heard in some of the history, essentially preparing the nationals to carry the church forward. That then should transition into partnership, which is what Al has mentioned that we've been talking about since we got here. The, the goal of missions is to move towards an equal relationship, but then ultimately step back and just become a participant. Let the national church run it. So we're going to run through some of the, this in the history of Latin America mission here, which was founded by Harry Strachan. He was born of Scottish parents in Ontario, Canada, and at age seven sensed he was called as a missionary and was trying to go to Africa. But he couldn't pass the physical exam necessary because Africa was such a demanding place at that time. So he was assigned to Argentina and in 1902 went to Argentina and that's where he met and married Susan, Susan Blemish uh, in 1903 who was also rejected for Africa service and I guess just sent to Latin America. That's where they go if you can't go to Africa. Um, for 15 years they worked south of Buenos Aires and Harry experimented with outdoor evangelistic campaigns using essentially circus tents. So when we hear about a tent revival, uh, we've known about those in this country, that's what they were doing. That's the lower picture there. Uh, just monster circus tents that they would move around, usually by horse-drawn carriage. Uh, transportation in that era wasn't very easy. And so they experimented there for 15 years and then chose to begin what became known as the Latin America Mission because he saw that South America was being evangelized, but Central America was being largely ignored and moved to San Jose, Costa Rica. The Strachan's vision was to reach the unevangelized through Harry's aggressive evangelism campaigns, while Susan developed the ministry at a local level. So Harry was the center of attention uh, since he was the one out in front of the pulpit he would draw in local Protestant pastors and get them out in front as well. Um, even at this early stage, the Strachans envisioned a greater cooperative movement and wanted to go much further beyond what they were doing. So they sought out other missions agencies to come to Central America and work with them, work alongside them. They were motivated by an expectation that Jesus is returning soon. There was an urgency there. Uh, it was a faith mission that God alone, through his people, provides. 
that they needed to depend on God, that they had no guaranteed salaries, but that they could not go into debt. That was their approach to how they were going to minister. So in October 1921, they settled in San Jose, Costa Rica. They were the only missionaries there at the time. There were no other missionaries in Costa Rica. And this is three years after the end of World War I. So just to get a time period and understanding, transportation wasn't easy, especially in Central America. Um, a few days after arriving, Harry set off on the first campaign to Guatemala, leaving his wife and kids to complete the unpacking and begin getting set up. In his haste, he only left $100 in cash with them and a check that he forgot to endorse. To him, nothing was so important as the evangelistic effort. And this became a life pattern for the Strachan family, Harry out campaigning and Susan raising the family and running the growing mission presence there in San Jose. Now, to our ears, we think, how foolish. He left his family. How could he do that? He came back regularly, and they did an amazing ministry. But Cloudy and I have had the opportunity to work along a lot of unique missionaries. Uh, a family in uh, Pichilemu, Chile. Just We love them to death and uh, have enjoyed following along on their really pioneering ministry. They're with Youth with a Mission. I first visited them in 93 when they were working at a base in Santiago, but with a vision to set up this University of the Nations in Pichilemu. And it was a dirty, dusty place. The kids regularly had colds, you know, things that as a new missionary, I thought, you know, that's, I, I can't see myself living that way. However, uh, two decades later now, they have accomplished some amazing things and trained teams that have gone all over the world taking the gospel. Uh, just seeing the way that their style of ministry meets a unique type of person and then carries the gospel in unique ways gives me an appreciation for uh, what the Strachans were accomplishing. Is it the way I would run my family? Probably not. But I probably wouldn't accomplish what they did during that period of time either. So, fortunately for miss, mission historians, one of the first ministries that the Strachans began was the Latin America Evangelist. It was a monthly magazine that actually significantly influenced the gospel in Latin America. Uh, going through some of the history, it's amazing during especially the, the 70s and the period of turmoil in Central America, it was a gospel voice throughout Latin America. And riding the wave of really the movement of communism and socialism that a lot of churches were embracing and trying to find a common ground and making sure that the gospel stayed in the forefront. But I say fortunately for historians because apart from Susan recollections of their, and their children's of their ministry time there, although Harry kept records himself, he destroyed them all when someone mentioned they might write a biography, preferring that all glory go to God. And so he burned all the records. 
he didn't want that to be part of the story. Yet here we are talking about him. Mostly because there's a lot to learn from him. So the first campaign in Guatemala that he set out for uh, in 1921, meetings in that day could last weeks or even months. They'd show up with a tent and stay as long as people were coming, continue incorporating local pastors. Travel was on foot, horseback, or boat. Uh, Catholic Central America attendees in general wouldn't go into a Protestant church and most of them hadn't heard a clear presentation of the gospel at that point. So the tents make, made a very non-threatening way for them to hear the gospel. And of that first campaign, Strachan wrote, the believers are enthusiastic to an extraordinary degree. They have never heard such preaching and seeing the crowds increase day by day is a great inspiration to them as well as the local team. At the first meeting, there were 125 people present, and this was thought to be wonderful by the audience. But now, this is written some days later, many of the leading men of the town, the doctors, the lawyers, etc., are coming along. Last night, the body of the theater was packed with a considerable overflow out and beyond the tent. Don Juan, a local pastor, preached with great power and lucidity and without a solitary reference to the clergy. My soul was thrilled with joy to see that splendid audience listening with rapt attention to such clear, forcible, convincing presentations of the gospel message. They did encounter opposition, though. Uh, the Catholic, Catholic Church in Latin America was very zealous and actively oppressed the Protestant church. Um, Latin America, as Al mentioned in his teachings, had never experienced the Reformation. So they didn't have an understanding of really what historically had happened. And so we were dealing with a church that had no concept of really the change. And actually, one of the Catholic newspapers published, the children of Jesus cannot be confounded with the children of Luther. Because Jesus is the Son of God, and Luther was the filthy aberration of unbridled passions. These meetings are nothing more than satanic. So, towards the end of these, this series of meetings in Guatemala, opposition rose more and more. And at one point, the tent didn't arrive in time, and so they were meeting in a local theater. The theater was packed out, but a mob showed up outside, stones in hand, and began pelting through the doors anybody that was inside, to the point that all of the attendees had to press up against where the, uh, the pulpit was, and they were worried about people getting crushed. So they started evacuating out of the back of the theater, only to meet more protesters. And as they came out, they yelled out, here come, let's see, aquí viene el diablo, here comes the devil, and began to stone them as they sought shelter. Um, from some of Harry's writings afterwards, although the stones whizzed by our heads and struck our arms and backs and legs, the team and everyone managed to make it to shelter. While the mob continued to stone the hotel and threatened to break in, finally a contingent of Guatemalan soldiers came for protection. 
After that time, we prayed for our enemies, and the team went to bed. The next morning, we shook the dust off our feet and headed to the next town. So it wasn't simple, clear, easy uh, presentations that they were able to make, but something that they, they were willing to uh, walk through. And the local pastors were, though they were further persecuted, encouraged all the more. Meanwhile, back in San Jose, we see part of the paternal phase of missions. Susan was organizing and directing supportive missionaries, starting a seminary, a hospital, an orphanage, um, Spanish and English periodicals, and really became the foundation of Latin America Mission's holistic outreach. It's easy to see the results because many of these ministries still exist today. One of the hospitals is the largest hospital in Costa Rica that still cares for the poor by doing medical tourism. They receive tourists from all over the world who come for medical procedures there, and that helps fund their ministry. But it's harder to see the results of the preaching, though throughout Latin America, the presence is still there where churches that were begun, churches that were encouraged, grew radically during this time period. Uh, Susan died in 1950 in Clinica Biblica, and the hospital she founded in San Jose, as I mentioned, uh, is the largest in Costa Rica. So, after 1971, so we're jumping ahead 50 years, uh, in the midst of the Cold War, there was another transition in Latin America mission. And the son of Harry, Kenneth Strachan, decided that it was time to take the next step into the partnership phase. And what Latin America mission did then, throughout Central America and South America, is turned every single ministry over to Latin leadership. Um, by accounts, what would equate to millions of dollars in property that uh, they had acquired. And these were schools, hospitals, clinics, orphanages, camps, women's ministries, and all sorts of micro-enterprises that had been developed for the purpose of the gospel. This was a period of difficult transition in many ways because the mission lost its identity uh, for quite a time. They were trying to figure out. They felt it was the right thing to do, absolutely. But now, as partners, what are we? What, what, do we, what do we do with all of the missionaries we have on the field? It was hard for many of those missionaries to make that transition from running the show to now being under Latin leadership. Uh, little by little, though, that became the standard, and new missionaries came on knowing that they were to be under Latin leaders. One of the things that Ken stated during this time is missions have gone through two stages thus far. First, the stage when the mission was everything and the church was practically non-existent. Second, the stage we are presently concluding where mission and church exist side by side. There's a third stage that upon which we are now entering when the mission becomes absorbed by the church and its contribution to the evangelization of unreached people in given areas is affected through the channels and under the supervision of the national church, whose primary responsibility it is and must be. 
you jump to nine, Nico? So as you know, recently, there was another major change and Latin America mission merged into United World Mission. Some of you have heard the frustrations and difficulties that we've gone through during that time, but God has been so merciful to us as a family. And as we look at this 50 years after the turning over of ministries to the Latin church, the mission is still wrestling with this. The mission is still trying to figure out how to do this. Um, And it's a period of time where this vision has expanded and been injected into United World Mission. And rather than just being in Latin America, it's being pumped throughout the mission so that there's an understanding of the need to transition. But it's not easy. Again, as we mentioned earlier, the uh, church in Kenneth Strachan's time was ready to receive it, but the missionaries didn't know what to do afterwards. So I wanted to step into a little bit of where we are now, but I want to encourage you to see this, this transition from where we started in the, in the 1600s to missions compounds to a maturing national church worldwide to what does it mean for missionaries to cooperate with them. Um, one of the discussions that we're going to be having this summer is how does the Latin church send missionaries? Uh, while we were in Chile, we had missionaries being sent to Uruguay and Brazil from Claudius Church that we got to know. And sometimes it's difficult, just financially. It can be very difficult. Um, when we're used to a North American structure of insurance of having at least two months' salary in your account, of having all of the health records in order, of knowing everything that's all of the cultural preparation before you ever get on the field, of making sure that you're theologically prepared to essentially a pastoral level that's unattainable by many of these cultures. And so making a transition to understand what are these cultures prepared to do, what is the church able to do, and understanding that, you know, God has used that in the past <laughs> instead of just my idea of what missions is. So pre- before the merger, before um, <coughs> Latin America Mission merged into United World Mission, we were starting to talk about national missionaries and what it looked to send. Uh, that conversation got sidelined, but it's coming back into the conversation again now. And we're going to be talking with some individuals from Mexico who have been working on how can United World Mission assist in the sending of Latins. One of the groups that is a partner ministry that we're going to be working with is an active Latin sending missions agency, but they haven't received much attention because we haven't known what to do with them. We're going to be sitting down and talking with them and seeing how instead of being the missions agency that directs what the Latin ministries do, we can reverse that role. Seeing what they know to do already and how we can simply be supportive of them. It's ongoing. Uh, If you think of what I mentioned earlier, Youth with a Mission. Youth with a Mission started with a vision of just getting youth on the field. Uh, 
because they've got energy, they've got passion. Um, I remember the advertisements in magazines I used to get as a kid. It was go lay a brick for God. You know, very directed at youthful passions. Well, those youth are now in their 50s, 60s, and not so energetic. So they've had to make some changes as well. How do you draw in a new generation? <laughs> That's what we're looking at. And I'm encouraged looking at the history of what God has done that it's not about the mission, it's not about even the vision of the mission, but it's about what God does with it. And seeing his faithfulness, if you remember where we started last week from Pentecost, to forcefully move people beyond their comfort zones. Uh, many times, shedding their blood in order to move the, com- the, the uh, gospel forward. That's not the level that I think we're at right now, but um, looking ahead, I think it can be coming in this country, very much so, with a church that has forgotten how to not only evangelize, but value what God has given us. So as missionaries looking ahead, um, I'm not sure what God's going to be doing, but I see If you could jump, Nico. Um, One more. I see North America and Europe becoming less the forerunner on missions. This graph really shows what happened when it says the rest of the world. That includes Latin America. That includes Asia. We've heard about the Korean church and what they're doing. It's amazing what's going on. And so my hope is that North America and Europe can become simply a supportive structure to the rest of the world that are going everywhere and to the Latins that are coming to the U.S. to minister to Latin populations of their own cultures that the North American church is unable to, to the Koreans that are sending missionaries to the U.S. to do the same thing. We are a missions receiving ground now. But the more that we can maintain the gospel and help it continue to move forward, the more we get to be part of that wave of whatever God's doing in this next step. So I want to conclude uh, really by encouraging us to understand that we are part of that. And that though we may not be called to go to another country, we've got people groups that do not know the gospel right here. If we look around our neighborhood, some of us live in the same neighborhood, look around our neighborhood, there's people groups in our neighborhood who haven't heard the gospel. And they don't necessarily have to be Latin who just came from another country. Uh, One of the areas that is being discussed in missions and uh, missions organizations is the micro-fragmenting of people groups, including homosexual transgender, all of those groups that desperately need the gospel. In this country, we've got people groups that are devoid of an understanding of what Christ has done from them because of the way they've been raised. Figuring out how 
to carry the gospel to those groups, just as these missionaries we talked about figured out how to take it to people groups in Japan, people groups in India, in unique ways that maybe aren't so comfortable to the status quo and may get some resistance. That's the challenge of us here and now that we have before us. How do we do that? So next week we're going to dive into a little bit more of what's it, me for, what's it mean for me to carry the gospel? What is the difference between a missionary and someone called to the Great Commission? Everybody who is a Christian is called to the Great Commission. Not everybody is called to be a, quote, missionary and go cross-culturally, but uh, we're going to explore some of that. So let me close in prayer, and thank you. Lord, thank you for all that you are at work doing, that history is your story, that from the beginning, from Genesis, Lord, your plan was redeeming your people, that from Pentecost, you equipped your people to carry your message to those who hadn't heard it. And when they didn't move, you moved them. Lord, you're faithful to your word and you're faithful to your promises. And you're faithful to redeem those that you've called. Thank you for calling us to, to your work, the work that you're about doing, Lord. Help us to to not only embrace that, but to follow you with a passion. Lord, to be inspired by those who have gone before us and to see those that are around us as those that need to hear your word. And Lord, to whatever degree you want to move us cross-culturally, equip us in that. Lord, help us trust you because it's not easy, it's not comfortable. But, Lord, it's what you've called us to do. Thank you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.